Good morning. <laughs> and welcome to chapel. Please stand with me and turn to number 13 and sing the journey. My soul is filled with joy, and we will be singing all five verses. Green, the green one.
You may be seated. Good morning, and welcome to this special Wednesday morning chapel as we kick off Celebrate Service Day. My name is Bob Yoder, one of the campus pastors here. This morning, our Goshen College community will spread throughout several communities here in northern Indiana and southern Michigan by serving in various local agencies. For some of us, it will involve physical labor as we paint, clean, pull weeds. For some of us, it will be interacting with people. No matter where we serve, let us be the presence of Jesus to all we come in contact. No matter where we serve, may we also listen to all we come in contact. Let us pray together. Gracious and loving God, thank you for this day. We pray that as we are dwelling in this place this morning, that you will move in our hearts, open our ears to hear the words of Alexi, and challenge us and be with us throughout the entire day today. Amen. This morning, we are grateful to have with us Alexi Torres Fleming, who will share with us parts of her faith journey this morning and ministry involvement over the last 15 or so years. Alexi is the founder and executive director of Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice in Bronx, New York. Founded in 1994, this ministry rebuilds the neighborhoods of Bronx River and Soundview Bruckner by preparing young people to become prophetic voices for peace and justice. They accomplish this through political education, spiritual formation, and youth and community development and organizing. Their vision recognizes the developmental needs of young people, but also realizes the role of young people as essential stakeholders in their local communities. They work to support the development of the minds and bodies of young members, never separate from the development of their spirits in their community, and are rooted in the principles of Catholic social teaching. In 2008, Alexi was the recipient of the 2008 Jane Jacobs Medal for New Ideas and Activism. This medal was established to honor the work of the urban visionary Jane Jacobs, who was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1916, moved to New York City following the Depression after, the, after she graduated from high school, and then later lived in Toronto before passing away a few years ago in 2006. Jacobs, an urban activist is remembered for her belief in the power of individuals to take responsibility for their own environment. The Jane Jacobs Medal established in 2007 by the Rockefeller Foundation is awarded to two living persons whose accomplishments represent Jacobsian principles and practices in action in New York City. This award recognizes the recipient's visionary work in building a more diverse, dynamic, and equitable city through creative uses of the urban environment. Alexi will be with us this morning in chapel as well as Friday at chapel. She will also be with us this evening at 9 p.m. during worship night in Rec Fitness Center 104 for more of an informal Q&A time. I invite you all to come out for that. She will also be meeting with various student groups um, on campus and some faculty too um, over the next couple of days. Alexi, we welcome you here to Goshen College. 
Good morning. My beautiful students, so fresh and awake at 9-11. Um, grace and peace and blessings to all of you. I'm so happy to be here. One of my favorite places to speak uh, is on college campuses and universities where the best and the brightest and the, the most fresh and energetic uh, workers in the vineyards are being established and being rooted. And, um, and so I pray that this day that we, you spend in service these few moments that we have together and the next few days that you will, um, that I can be a blessing to you, that we can share some time one-on-one, -on -one, um, all for that purpose, right? All for the purpose of becoming who we are, what we're supposed to be, to figure that all out in service um, to God, to our creator, to his people, to his children. Um, my journey and my story really is uh, very connected um, uh, to yours today. And uh, so I wanted to share a little bit with it today. And over the next three days, you'll hear a little bit more about sort of what brought me here and what's brought me to this moment and this season in my life. Um, as uh, Bob said, I was born and raised in the South Bronx, New York. Anybody here ever been to the Bronx, New York? I didn't think so. <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Say hello afterwards. So um, I was born and raised in the South Bronx, New York. And if you know New York City and you know the Bronx, and if you know your history, you know that the South Bronx is a very particular place in the, in the minds of people across the world. Um, and I'll tell you about it. The South Bronx is the poorest congressional district in all of the United States. So when we talk about poverty in this country, um, it, it's most, concentra most concentrated poverty exists in the neighborhood that I was born and raised in. And I was born and raised in the 60s in public housing projects. Uh, public housing projects were basically subsidized uh, buildings, usually 13 stories, about 10 of them in a small lot uh, where folks who were poor could come together and live um, in the same community. And so I was born there, and my dad is uh, originally from Puerto Rico. And que viva. <laughs> and uh, that means long live Puerto Rico. And um, my mom is also. And so I'm first generation here in this country from Puerto Rico, from two extraordinary parents. My mom was a servant leader at uh, church all of my years growing up. She um, you know, did everything from run the church gift store to um, teach. Um, and daddy, well, daddy supported us. Um, First, um, when daddy first came to this country, he was homeless for a while. And then daddy um, became a deli man and a dishwasher in, um, in the Manhattan delis. And so daddy would wash the dishes. And in those days, um, people of color were not allowed to be on the, at the counters. And so daddy would work behind the wall and they actually put a little hole in the wall where if daddy needed something, he could speak. Um, because people like him were not allowed to, to be seen by the patrons uh, of this restaurant. Um, soon after that, Daddy met my mom. Um, they'll be married 50 years uh, in two years, uh, which is wonderful and, and a huge blessing. But soon after that, he met Mommy at a church dance, and um, they got married, and, and, and they began their family. Um, I'm one of four children, and... Um, when daddy and mom began to raise a family, it became a little bit difficult, so we moved into the public housing projects, and daddy got a job working with the city at the, at the building. So daddy was a maintenance man. Daddy did lots of things. 
Um, I would regularly see him every day. If you're a little Puerto Rican girl and you go to school and you see your father, what do you say? You say, bendición, papi, as you walk out the door, which is basically our tradition of asking our father for our blessing or our mother for the blessing. And so I'd say, bendición, papi, and papi would be outside. And uh, one of his jobs was washing urine off of the walls. Now, that might seem like a strange thing to you, but um, unfortunately, many of the men often relieve themselves in the, bath, uh, in the elevators or in the stairwells. And so one of Daddy's jobs was washing urine off of the walls. And uh, Daddy used to do that, and I'd go to school in the morning, and I'd see him, and he'd do that singing. Um, and from Daddy, I learned a lot of things. Um, we suffered a lot, and Daddy suffered a lot. My father suffered from addiction uh, to alcohol while we were growing up. But all in all, my life was extraordinary to me. It was wonderful. Um, until there came a time in my high school years um, where I began to hear things about myself that I didn't really understand. And perhaps you've heard some of these terms about some of the places that you're going today, right? Uh, places that others consider, folks from the outside consider dark places, consider impoverished, consider ghettos, right? So I began to, while I had this extraordinary image of myself as a wonderful, powerful little brown girl growing up in a wonderful place with wonderful parents, I began to understand that the world around me didn't see me that way. They saw me as at risk. You all know that term, right? They saw me as at risk of dropping out of school, at risk of becoming pregnant, at risk of, you know, drugs, taking drugs. And so everyone in the outside world's interaction with me became about prevention. It wasn't about my potential. It wasn't about everything good that I was. It was about how do we prevent these bad things. And, 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 and that's all well-intentioned and good, but I have to share with you from the soul of a little girl who thought she was spectacular and phenomenal, to begin to believe these things, to hear these things, begins to change something inside of you. And perhaps you've had that experience sometime in your life where people begin to define you in a way that you don't necessarily believe or understand. And you begin to experience something, uh, you begin to internalize that. And, and, and there's a term called internalized oppression. You know, you begin to believe things about yourself that aren't true. And so around that time, Lots of things were happening in the community that really um, perpetuated this image of the South Bronx being a very bad and dark place. Um, you know, if you know your urban history, you may not study, you know, New York City urban history here, but um, the South Bronx was a place of where there was attempts at what is called urban renewal, you know, so there were all sorts of policies about how we could come in and take this, this very blighted area and rebuild it. And there was a policy called planned shrinkage that was put into place. And I'm not going to go into all the details of it because I didn't understand it when I was a little girl. But basically what happened is that the city decided that if it closed police stations, it closed fire departments, it closed schools, if it closed down city services, you would literally shrink the community and then you can sort of rebuild it. Well, what wound up happening was that people really fought for their community and people were very angry. And owners, building owners and business owners decided, you know, it's better to just get out of here. And they literally would set fire to their own buildings, to their own properties, collect insurance money, and then leave. Um, this was no, a phenomenon known as white flight. And so I lived on the ninth floor of the public housing projects and perched from my windows, I literally watched my entire community burn to the ground day after day after day after day. 
I could hear the fire engines ringing in my ears all the time, interrupting conversations. The taste of smoke was always in my throat. Um, and this was a reality for several years of my, of, of my, of my childhood. And so this compounded with, uh, with everything else. Folks began to teach me, right? And these were good-meaning ch folks from church, from school, that Alexi, the only way you're going to make it, the only way you're going to get saved, the only way you're going to survive is to get out, is to escape. And so while I didn't want to, because I loved home and I loved my dad and my mom, I felt that that was the only option that I had. And so for a long time, um, I did everything I could to get out, to get out. Even though at church, I had learned something about the incarnation of Jesus, right? I had learned the theology of incarnation that says that, you know, Christ became one with the poorest of the poor and that he lived amongst them. There wasn't a theology of God came from heaven and, and went to another place and, and, and came from saved. No, he came and lived amongst us. And despite the fact that I had learned all that, despite the fact that mommy and daddy had told me that, that God had a special place in his heart for the poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable, I didn't see that. I didn't understand that. And that was not affirmed for me. And despite the fact that when I was in high school, going into college, all I wanted to do was serve. Those opportunities, um, in some ways, were not available to me. Um, excuse me. And so I left. Got as far away as I can, as I could, from the South Bronx, from my mom and my dad, and grew to understand that the outside world looked at people like my father as totally powerless. Imagine that. I thought my father was the most powerful, extraordinary person in the world. And yet the world taught me outside that he was powerless because he had a third grade education and because his job was to wash urine off of elevator walls. And people told me that if I wanted to make something of myself in this country, that in many ways I had to turn my back on my community and my family. And inside of me for so long, there was this long and big tug of war inside of me between who I thought I was, who I wanted to be, and what the rest of the world told me I was supposed to be. And perhaps in this season in your lives as students here, um, you go through some of those same questions. You know, our journeys may be different, where we're from may be different, but I trust and I believe that all of us, all of our souls, encounter these important questions. Who are we? And who are we supposed to be? Well, for a while, I was a very successful businesswoman in Manhattan. I had a great apartment in Midtown overlooking the Hudson River. I made a lot of money. I traveled the world. Um, I had nice things. I had everything to live with, <laughs> but I had very little to live for. Does anybody know that experience? Just just a real sense of disconnection and emptiness. I'd go home and I'd hate it. I'd get off the train and I'd hate it. You know, I'd go home back to the Bronx and visit my parents just for the holidays if I had to. Um, but had a real hate relationship with myself. But, and found myself never quite feeling like I could fit in. Do you all know what that feels like to just feel like you just don't fit? 
Part of it was my, own, was my own doing, right? Part of it was me trying to fit into this construct. It's a very American construct, people, right? Whether you're poor or not. <laughs> Get as far away as you can, be as successful as you can. Um, but it's not, a, it's, it's not a construct necessarily grounded in, in who I was as a young woman and as a Christian woman. Um, and so there came a point in my life where I became so profoundly sad and disconnected, and I tried to figure out, how do I begin to reconnect, right? And so I tried charity. Uh, people said, give back, Alexi. You've got a lot, give back. So I would go back, and I would work at some of the homeless shelters and do some work at the soup kitchens in my community, and, and that made me feel better for some part, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, and, and hopefully you and I will explore over the next few days sort of the, what I see as the, the three pieces of our, of our walk as children of God and as Christians, right, in terms of our connection to the poor. Um, it's not just service and charity, and, and that's, although that's an important part of it. Um, there's also the work of justice, and we'll talk more about that. And then there's the work that's, that's the work that's just between you and God, and, and that prayer, and that time to connect to our spirit lives. And, and, and those three together, I think, enable us to connect to the poor and those outside in profound ways. But, so I began, and I began just with charity, and that wasn't enough. And so I began to come back to my old church. I'd take a, the subway. Um, I was raised Catholic, by the way, if I didn't say that. And, um, and I was raised by Franciscans in the Catholic Church. And I don't know if you know, if, if you're familiar with the Franciscan tradition, but it's a, a very uh, beautiful tradition grounded in um, simplicity, in um, uh, poverty that is, you know, um, chosen, um, and then also in the work of social justice and community. And so when I went back to church, my old pastor was organizing um, anti-drug prayer march. Hmm, what was that? I didn't necessarily understand that church and that work of activism, you know, what I did, what you do here in school, and sort of what happens in the communities that you're going to visit today are connected, right? I thought church and faith was about making it into heaven someday, about dealing, you know, with my own personal relationship with God. Um, I didn't always understand that it was also about my connection to people. And maybe you all understand that better than I did, but I didn't understand it at that time. And so I found it a strange experience because after the fires happened in the South Bronx, the crack epidemic hit very hard. You all know what crack is? It's a very, very ugly, addictive drug that devastated my community right after the fires and devastated families and children. And so the crack epidemic hit us so hard, and the parish was trying to come together to known crack houses. See, what would happen is folks who took crack and were addicted to crack would take over abandoned buildings and literally be in there all day and all night, just destroying themselves, their bodies. Children would be in there with their mothers and fathers. Um, watching their parents just kill themselves. It was just a very horrible experience. And so there were seven known crack houses in my community, okay? My community is less than a square mile. 65,000 people live in less than a square mile. 15,000 of them are under the age of 18. And there were seven known crack houses in that area. 
And so we decided that we were going to go, and I followed along in praying at these crack houses and uh, demanding that police come in and shut them down and that there be services offered to those who were um, suffering from this addiction. And so we went on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Maybe y'all have done this too, right? We said, oh, okay, I'm going to participate in this march. This is going to make me feel real good. And so we went on a Sunday. We carried our signs. We walked to the seven crack houses. We prayed, and we went home afterwards. It wasn't that many of us. Not too many people signed up for it. Two weeks later, I was sitting in my job, um, and that morning I had awoken to the news on the, on the television that my church had been torched in retaliation by drug dealers for that act. And that totally, totally just rocked my world because remember I was in this tension between how do I reconnect, but then everything that I was being told about, well, no, that's not a place that you want to reconnect to. And so my first instinct was what on earth have I gotten myself into? What have I done? Why did I do this? But then there was this other instinct inside of me that was like, this is the moment you have been waiting for. <laughs> this is your chance to escape from here <laughs> and to go back to become the person that you really, really are. And so I went back to church. Um, I grabbed a press list because I had been doing um, marketing and public relations at the time. I grabbed my press list and went back and got on the train to church. And oh my goodness, when I got there, Hundreds of people, the media all over the place. You don't burn a church in this country and not get national attention. Media was everywhere, hundreds of people in the church. And what I saw most was people kneeling and crying over broken um, statues. There was a big statue of Mary and lots of other statues. It was a Catholic church, and they had been thrown to the ground and, and broken, and people were weeping over it. And photographers were taking pictures of it. And in my heart, I heard this voice that said, what are you doing crying over this? Every single day, my true sanctuary, my true sanctuary is burned and desecrated in the bodies of the people out there, not in here, who are dying of crack, dying of hunger and poverty. When are you going to cry over that? I don't live here, I sensed God say to me. I don't live here. I thought God lived in church. God was clear on that day that he did not live there. And that the tears that we cried over broken statues and beautiful symbols, the tears that we cried, the struggles that we go over, over the symbols of our faith and our religion are not the places where God's heart is and not where God wants us to be burdened. And so the press, taking pictures, asked, what are you going to do now? And I said, we cannot let this picture appear in the newspaper of us crying over a broken statue be the last image of who we are as a people of God. People of God don't cry over statues and then do nothing. And so I said, we're going to march again. And I got in trouble because I didn't ask anybody if we could do that. Or I was 28. I was, I was ready to make my break. <laughs> and, um, and so we did, you know. And with some struggle, 
um, the word got out and we put up flyers and the next day after we put up flyers saying that we were going to march again in two weeks, the death threats began to come in. And um, there were threats that the crowd would be shot at if we tried to march again. There were death threats against the pastor, poor Father Mike. His name was Father Mike Tyson, by the way. Um, <laughs> he really was the fighting Franciscan. And he had to wear a bulletproof vest, I remember, for two months. Um, but true to form, Father Mike was a good pastor. You all have good pastors here and good leaders here who said to me, it's not about this. It's like, of course we're going to do it again. Of course we're going to do it again. And so we marched. Um, we came out again. It was a beautiful fall day in November of 1992. And I remember getting off the train and walking down the street. And I, my eyes were swollen because I had kind of worked to organize all this. And what most people said to me was, ain't nobody going to show up. People are afraid. Their lives are complicated enough. They don't need to show up for this. I remember the press person from the mayor's office, it was then Mayor Dinkins in New York City, said, this is going to be an embarrassment and a waste of city resources, young lady. They had to hide, you know, put out extra police on buildings to, with rifles to, to protect the crowd in case indeed we were shot into. No, everyone said no one would show up. And on that day, I walked down the block and 1,200 people from my community were there. Now, let me just be clear. None of the powerful people on Madison Avenue, where I worked, were there. The people with the ties, the people with the college degrees, the people um, that I had been taught were the people who had power in this world, they weren't there. But everyone that I had been taught was powerless. Everyone that I had been taught was at risk. Everyone that I had been taught I should pity or feel sorry for, right? Maybe some folks like the folks you're going to go and serve today, they were the ones out in the street. It was the single moms like my sister pushing her baby in a stroller. It was the elderly grandmothers and grandfathers. It was the immigrants, the documented and the undocumented, walking a sea of people. But you know who else was there? My daddy. My papi has been with me through every demonstration I've ever organized since then in the last 15 years. But there was my dad. My dad has a third grade education. My daddy, who washed urine off of walls, was there that day for me. And God said to me, Alexi, this is what power is. This is what power is. Look at your daddy. That's power. My children from the margins coming to the center with all of their dignity, using their own power and their own voice to support each other and to build my kingdom. My kingdom, God said, is not going to come out of the sky someday and land on you all and make it all better. Look, here's my kingdom. And I thought, and I looked, and I said, but these are the forgotten, the lost, and God said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so we marched on that day. It was a beautiful day. And when it was all over, I had a big choice to make, a huge choice to make. I knew that I had come to that reckoning moment in my life. And perhaps you all um, have come there or one day will come there. To so that moment where you have to choose who 
you are and who God intended you to be. Now, I know y'all are young enough to remember the movie The Lion King. Don't lie, because I know you've seen it. I've seen it many times, because I have little children. And if you remember the movie, you'll remember the movie The Lion King. It's a powerful moment in The Lion King. Um, Simba, you all remember who Simba is, right? He's off and he's having a good time. Kuma Matata and, you know. And um, the wise Rafiki comes and tells him, Simba, you're not where you're supposed to be. And Nala comes back and says, you're not where you're supposed to be. He was like, what do you mean? Hakuna Matata. I'm supposed to be right here, just having, just living my life. And so one day, Simba's out and he looks up in the sky and who does he see? His big daddy. And daddy appears to him and daddy says his father had died. And his father appeared to him and said to him, remember what he said to him? He said, Simba, you've forgotten me. <gasps> How could I forget you, daddy? Maybe that's what my daddy thought. Alexi, te olvidado de mí. Te olvidado de tu cultura. Te olvidado de tu gente, de tu comunidad. My daddy may have been thinking, Alexi, you've forgotten about me. You've forgotten your culture. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten your community. Maybe daddy thought the same thing about me. But Simba's daddy said, Simba, you've forgotten me. And he said, Daddy, how could I have forgotten you? I love you. I'll never forget you. And he said, no, you've forgotten me because you've forgotten who you are. And you haven't taken your place in the circle of life. And that was me in that moment. I had forgotten who I was raised to be. Allowed stories about who I was, you know, that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't white enough, that I wasn't educated enough, that I didn't come from good enough to define who I was. But in the end, God says, no, this is who I have called you to be. Might not be who you're called to be, but it was who I was called to be. Lots of things happened. One night I had a dream. I struggled so much, what do I do? Lord, what do I do? One night I had a dream, and I saw my community covered in darkness with demonic figures all posted on the buildings. And suddenly a light came through and I saw, I saw an image of Christ kneeling and praying. And as I got closer, I could hear God kneeling and praying for me, that I would have the courage to be who I was supposed to be. Well, the story is long. It's been a 15-year journey. But two months later, I quit my job on Madison Avenue and moved back to the South Bronx. You could hear the utter dismay from my family and from everyone around me. But you had become the shining star. You had made it out. You were going to, you know, you were going to be our one. What are you doing coming back? <sighs> but here I am. I don't want to share with you all that God has done, all that God has done from taking me from what is symbolically powerful in this country and showing me what true, true power is. Today, you will encounter true power, not because of what you're going to do, but because of the very nature and dignity and beauty 
of the people that you will serve. I pray that today God speaks to your heart about power in a way that you've never understood it before. And I pray over the next few days that we're together that we can continue to explore what the true power is and what it really means to become the child of God that you're supposed to be. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Alexi. Um, turn with me to 307 in the blue hymnal, Will You Let Me Be Your Servant? And Sarah will play it through once, and then we'll, be, we'll sing verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. And why don't you stand with me? Good morning. Alexi, thank you so much for your story and for preparing us for this day in a way that, um, yeah, I could not have predicted and I appreciate that so much. So moving into the details of Celebrate Service Day, this is our 11th annual day that we are headed out into the community to volunteer for the day. And I am so grateful that you all are here and taking a part in the day. We are headed to 39 different sites this year. Um, organizations throughout um, Goshen, Elkhart, as well as um, a few further afield into Michigan. So I invite us this morning as we uh, get ready to go to uh, send off our day with a prayer. Let's pray. To you, Creator God, 
from whose hands comes all of creation. We pray that this work we are about to do today may be done in companionship with you. May the work that we will soon begin sing praise to you. May the work that we will soon begin add to the light of your presence because it is done with great love. May the work that we will soon begin be a shimmering mirror of your handiwork. May we find joy in doing our work for its own sake. May we be open to the people with whom we are working. And may we be aware that through this work we draw near to you. We come to you, O God, with ready hands. Amen. A few announcements for the day. Um, first of all, uh, most of you have signed a waiver form, but if you have not signed a waiver form yet, I need every student to sign one. Um, and they can be found on the table with the t-shirts um, out in Schrock Plaza. So if, you're, if you don't remember signing one, if you could come find me over there, that would be great. Um, t-shirts, speaking of t-shirts, a big thank you to Tim Blom and um, Springer Designs for their um, work on the t-shirts. Tim did the design this year. Um, and we still have um, some for sale outside. All of the proceeds this year are going to Habitat for Humanity, um, a Christian organization that works at providing affordable housing for people who otherwise might not be able to afford their own home. And um, so far we've raised over $700 and hopefully by the end of today we will be getting closer to 1000 So if you haven't had a chance to buy one um, or if you are just inspired to make a donation, um, you can find a table over there in Shock Plaza. And a big thank you also to AVI Fresh for their help today, for preparing our box lunches. Um, and you are all invited to come out for picnic supper at 5 p.m. For people who don't have any form of meal plan, AVI Fresh um, is providing the meal free for you. So um, please come join us, even if you don't have a meal plan. Five o'clock outside of West Lawn, outside of the cafeteria area. And finally, Dutch Made Bakery has provided us um, with donuts again this year. So on your way out, swing through Shock Plaza, grab a donut, grab a juice, and then find your group and head out for the day. All right, have a great day.